Hey, folks, how are you? I just wanted to take a moment here to say that you can go to WTFPod.com slash tour to check out my upcoming tour dates. Like tomorrow night, I'll be at the Ruby Diamond Concert Hall in Tallahassee, Florida. I believe that's on the campus of the big uh, university there. I got uh, Durham, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. I got Ridgefield, Connecticut, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Montreal, Toronto, New Haven, Troy, New York, Berlin. Burlington, Vermont, Oakland, California, Seattle, Washington, Vancouver, BC, Austin, Texas, Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon again, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Philly, Washington, D.C., all coming up between now and mid-May. So go to WTFPod.com slash tour to see if you want to come. If you want to make it out, if you're around, if you have any interest. All right, let's do the show. Lock the gates! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Powerful weekend. Powerful weekend around the world. Today on the show, uh, Martin Landau, the actor and acting teacher who's been around for a very long time. Uh, Many of you know him from the Ed Wood movie, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, early on uh, Mission Impossible, Space 1999. Um, It's just the history of his career, but also his presence in uh, the art of acting and in show business in general, and what he's experienced going you know, back 50 years or more is uh, profound and beautiful. Very uh, a sweet guy, and just a, a, you know, a repository of amazing information about, about the importance of uh, theater and art and uh, acting, and, um, and also you know, reverence for people he's worked with, going back to the um, People's Theater. And, he, and he's in one of my favorite movies of all time. Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, the Woody Allen's masterpiece, but definitely one of the best movies ever made in terms of dealing with the the human animal, dealing with morality, dealing with choices, decisions, fears, jealousy, uh, love. I, I mean, it's really that is it. It's all in there. And Martin Landau was a was a genius in that movie, and I was. Thrilled to have him. He's a uh, a young eighty eight. I, I love talking to these old timers, you, you know, because even you know, I'm no old timer. I'm in my early fifties, but I remember when uh, there was less information around, less outlets around, uh, less distractions around, and it was uh, it's it's somewhat a little a little easier to find your heart and your place and your space and your mind in that world. Even if we were not getting all the information, uh, it, it, it might have been better in some ways. It's trickier now. I'm not saying I encourage denial, but maybe a little bit of detachment and, and a little bit of distance can't hurt. But that was not the case over the weekend. It was pretty amazing to see all these marches, these women's marches that were all inclusive. Men, women, children of all uh, races and ethnicities and groups and all different types of people 
really, uh, you know, coming together, I think, and, and sort of um, realizing that uh, we, we have ourselves to rely on, that there is a community of people that, uh, that de- deserve and, of course, want to be good, decent people, live in a, in a, in a diverse and tolerant America. You know, it's just it's it's very moving to me to see so many people of so many different types, you know, coming together. I mean, really, it's not it's not liberal to want equal rights. It's not liberal to to believe in science. It's not liberal to want human rights. It's not liberal to want tolerance and diversity. And it's not liberal to be compassionate. It's you know, it's it's American. And it was great to see so many people come together um and and just be who they are it takes a lot of energy you know there's a, there's a, there's really a sort of a a natural humility and vulnerability to not being able to pretend you are something you are not or to try to be you know to pass or be accepted for something you aren't and that uh, vulnerability and that humility is is beautiful and obviously there's a lot of anger there's a lot of uh, righteous anger around but man I, I was just happy to see everybody, you know, coming together and, and just, you know, being American, being good Americans and being good people to each other, being peaceful and, and trying to to show some solidarity uh, in their, you know, very real nervousness and fear about what's ahead, which we don't know. So that was exciting. That was uplifting. So let's I'm not going to spend too much time here. Because um, I have to pee, but I I do want to uh, to get you excited about this interview because it is a rare thing to talk to somebody who is uh, 88 years old and has been and seen and done so much uh, in the arts and in and in show business and and in teaching acting and and in um, just having a, a good spirit. It's a it was a beautiful conversation. I'm going to share with you now. This is me and Martin Landau. You know, about 10 years ago, I knew who you were as a stand-up comic. Is that true? Yeah, because I liked what you did. Uh, you know, I was a big Mort Saul fan, and, and Shelley Berman, uh, I was going to be one of the original uh, compass players. Uh, which Is that became, true in uh, Chicago? Which became Second City. Sure. In other words, I recruited Shelley Berman because we toured in Stellar 17 in, in the Catskills. Uh, well, Shelley and I used to do shtick. Uh-huh. Jewish dialect sure. stuff. Because we toured uh, like the Concord and Grossinger's and That's places so, in, and the, in the Catskill sure. Mountains. And Kutcher's. Kutcher's. Yeah. In fact, a couple of places where they, no English was spoken, so Stellar 17 did got nil laughs. Really? So it was all Yiddish? Well, in a couple of places were all Yiddish, and no one spoke English. Right. <laughs> and we did a play in English. Yeah. So, I mean, it was very quiet. So was that the beginning of your acting? Well, no, the beginning of my acting, I... I st- Let's go all the way back. So you, you're from okay. New York. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. I, I was a kid in, in, in Flatbush, and, uh, and I could draw, and I went to Pratt Institute... Uh, and study fine arts. That's a, that's still a good art school, I think, it, right? It's one of the best art schools in America. It, yeah. ha- it happened to be my local art school. Okay. Little did I know it was a great school. 
I mean, you know, Trap Haven, Haven it was a great fashion school, and, and uh, New York had a lot of stuff, but Brooklyn had Pratt. Right. And I went to Pratt because it was, you know, I went to Madison, Madison High School, James yeah. Madison, and Bernie, incidentally. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders went to Madison. Did you know him as a kid? No, he's. I'm 20 years older than he is. Oh, that's right. I mean, he, he, he's young. I call him a kid. So, so were your parents are first generation? No, my father was first generation. He was 12 when he came to America. My mother was like a fourth or fifth generation. New oh, so York. they were there already, huh? She was there. And where did, did your father escape? My father, no. My oh. father came from a family of, of people. He came before that. Yeah. His mother came first. Yeah. He had three brothers, two brothers and three sisters. Yeah. And she brought them over one by one. The father stayed in Austria-Hungary. Yeah. The border kept changing back right. and forth. Um, and uh, he married a Yankee. Uh-huh. I mean, he was proud. And he lost his- Jewish? He was he was Jewish and she was okay, Jewish, right? So, um, but a Yankee nonetheless. Uh, yeah. Well, a Yankee, American, American. Yeah, and he you know, worked like hell to get rid of his accent. Oh yeah. So I mean, he had a New York accent, which he didn't know about. Uh huh. What what I did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but he, you know he was great. He I got mean, rid of the Austrian accent. He was able he to. He got rid. That's right. <laughs> he got rid of any any trace of 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 the alien. <laughs> You're laughing, but you know. Uh, but it was interesting, I think, at that time that there was a, a need uh, that Jews felt that they had to pass uh, somehow. Absolutely, and, and, and New York, uh, the, of course, the, the ghettos were yeah. clearly Jewish neighborhoods sure. on the, the Lower East Side, and uh, Bleecker Street was yeah. Italian, uh-huh. and, and and you know there were you know borders, yeah. literally, and walls. I mean, uh, yes, he. He, and he and my mother lived in the same house, uh, same tenement house, yeah. and uh, different floors. In the city, before Brooklyn? In in downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, New mm-hmm. York, yeah. Before, what kind of business was he in? Well, originally, when I was first born, he, yeah. he was in, uh, he had a factory that did uh, pleating and stitching and stuff. And then he had a partner who robbed him and he went bankrupt and World War II broke out and everyone who had, he would have been made uniforms and stuff at that point and uh-huh. would have been very wealthy. But what he learned to do uh, was fix sewing machines uh, just out of the nature of his having a factory. So that was his business. So he then became a, a, a machinist uh-huh. and, and was able to make parts that they, they couldn't get parts because uh, the war effort was using uh, most of the metal. Uh, so custom parts. So he could make parts to a, you know, a custom, he had a, a workshop in the basement yeah. and, and a, you know. And, uh, so he's probably a sought out man, I, I would think, that the, the he, only guy that could get the parts was the guy actually, that could make them. He could, he, yes, <laughs> and, he, and fix, him, fix a sewing machine. And how many siblings did you have? I had two sisters, yeah. one of whom is 10 years older than I am and is still alive. Oh, you got the good genes there. Well, she just stopped driving. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> just I mean, now. You know, she was a man- At 98? Yes. She stopped driving. She stopped driving. She used to go to Atlantic City from, she lives in Queens. She, uh, 
She was a designated driver. I said, well, yeah. she said whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why are you driving? I said, how many of your sorority sisters are still alive? She said, none. I said, well, wait a minute. No, no. So who, who are these people you're driving? Yeah. She said, young people. Young. They're in the 70s and 80s. So, but, uh, you know, but two of her sons, mm-hmm. one is a psychiatrist and one is a heart doctor in out of Chicago now, uh, the psychiatrist used to call me and say, how do I get my mother to stop driving? I said, hey, you're the psychiatrist. What are you? She said, I'm her kid. And I said, well, I'm her kid brother. <laughs> no one could stop her. No one could stop her. She finally said, enough, because I, I think she realized she was a hazard. Yeah, she got scared or scared well, somebody else. I don't know what happened, but she said, you know, I'm considering giving up the driving. Mm-hmm. I said, really? You know, as if a... Oh, what prompted that? She said, don't ask. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't. So you're a kid growing up at this time, and you have this talent for drawing, uh, which I would think is not the, the first idea that your, your your father and mother thought you should pursue. Well, no. Yeah. Excepting I got a job uh, while I was still in high school uh-huh. in the New York Daily News yeah. in, in the art department. Oh, really? By bringing some stuff that I had drawn uh-huh. to for them to peruse, mm-hmm. and they hired me. Oh, look at that. I lied about, I was 17, and yeah. I, I said I was 18. So right away, I'm a liar to start with. So I go to Madison High School. At three o'clock, I walk to the BMT, get on a train, go to New York, and work from four o'clock till midnight on the Daily News, and do my homework on the train, and then go to high school again at eight o'clock. And what, in the were you drawing, or what were you doing? Everything. Yeah, I, I became a staff artist. Really? When well, you were like fifteen, I'm really, I'm really good. Yeah, I'm seventeen. Yeah, no, I was seventeen. Yeah, it was a year before I graduated from high school. After that, I went to Pratt and yeah. still worked at the news. I never told them. That I was a kid. How are you not going to know? But uh, good for them. I was working with guys called Flavius Guglielmo and Bob Carter. You know, a lot of anti-Semites, but (laughs) that's okay. You know, I mean Ed Evans, uh, Joe Donahoe. uh, The news was a you know a a tabloid. It had a huge circulation. Yeah, and they were grooming me. The reason I left was I could do caricatures. I mean, really. I'm good at that. Yeah. I can, you know, I, I was illustrating Billy Rose's column Pitching Horseshoes yeah. and doing caricatures. I did Red Skelton and uh, Fred Astaire and Billy Rose and Judy Garland. And and they were grooming me to become the theatrical caricaturist. Like a Hirschfeld, pre-Hirschfeld. Well, no, Hirschfeld was already on the Times, but uh-huh. the Daily News had three times the circulation of the times bill gallo who became the sports cartoonist yeah. on the news sat next to me i mean he was my pal i went to his wedding so you had a good gig going i had a great gig excepting i said horace knight was retiring horace and i was an old english fellow who was retiring yeah and i was going to move into that spot uh-huh which meant what that job entailed was i would be uh I would go to see a dress rehearsal or opening night and then do a cast caricature for uh-huh. the Sunday paper. Yeah. Two openings, two drawings. And that's the job, which is a great job. I mean, yeah. you know, 
I had a very uh, Art Deco look as opposed to... Uh, uh, cartoony? Well, no, it was cartoony, but, but Hirschfeld had a sweeping line. Yeah. Uh, you know, and yeah. I, I had a very rigid kind of deco yeah. look. I still have a deco look. Uh-huh. I mean, when I do a lot of pen and ink now. Now? Oh, really? Still, mm-hmm. with thousands of drawings. Uh, it relaxes me. Um, I realized at the time, if I got that job, I'd never quit. And I quit. Because you were afraid to be there your whole life? No, because I wanted to be an actor. Always? No. John Ward was one of the artists on the news, but he was studying acting. He was a handsome guy. In fact, I even gave him a girlfriend. Bobby LeBeau was her name. You gave him a girlfriend? Well, I said I... I introduced him? I didn't want to be her boyfriend oh. any longer, so... <laughs> And I, she was open to it. <laughs> I guess. Well, he was a very good-looking guy. Yeah, yeah. And and had great, you know, had great manners. And uh-huh, uh-huh. John Ward, I mean, he 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 was a t- terrific guy. Yeah. But he was studying acting with Sandy Meisner and talking acting a lot. And Frank Cosaro, who eventually, at one point, ran the New York Actors Studio which I'm involved with. Yeah. He was directing a, a T.S. Eliot play called The Family Reunion. And John was cast in it. And he was talking. He always talked about the theater and, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. I went to see Family Reunion on opening night mm-hmm. because he got tickets for me. Yeah. John Ward's performance to this day, was the worst performance I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> now, I had seen Lorette Taylor yeah. in Glass Menagerie, and I'd seen Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman. And you I, did? Oh, that must have been amazing. They, huh? were, they were both amazing, so much so that I said, how the hell do you do that? I realized, sitting there, that I could get up right then and there and do it a hundred times better without any training. I said, holy God, I want to do that. Yeah. I wasn't inspired by Lee J. Cobb. In fact, that wiped my, yeah. my, my desires out completely. And, and Lorette Taylor looked like she, she just wandered in off the street. She'd been a drunk for 30 years. And no one hired her. She was unhirable. She played the mother in Glass Menagerie, which just put Tennessee Williams on the map. Yeah. What I first did was went away to summer stock and i did before actor studio so you got the bug you wanted to be an actor you quit your job at the daily news and 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 you auditioned for summer stock yes okay and i got a gig yeah at the peaks island playhouse in maine which was america's first summer theater and it had a resident company of 40 people that's big huh all living in one big clappered house. <laughs> a lot of hormones running rampant, too. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yes. And Otto Semetti was the director, and Al Ruscio was an actor who studied seriously, and Peter Gummini. Uh, all these people had done this for a while. Yeah. I was new. And we did a straight play. How old were you, like 20? 22. Mm-hmm. You're the you're you're the you're the greenhorn. You're the I'm absolute. Yeah, but no, I didn't tell anybody. I was sure. 
I mean, you know, a lot of white shoe polish in the hair when I had to play older guys. Did you know what, was there, a, what was it, how does that work? Were there several shows? You'd go out with one show or you'd, no. you'd, you'd camp in, you'd do like you, what? You did every show. Yeah. You, I mean. How many per season? Like three or four? No. Well. 12 and 13 weeks. Oh, my God. A different show every week or how to yes. go? Yeah, I get it. In other words, we did a straight play in musical. We, we opened with uh Streetcar, I think, and then we did Roberta, and then we did, after Roberta, I think we did The Glass Menagerie, and I, I did a marriage proposal, Chekhov, and I mean, uh, all kinds of With stuff. With no training? No training. Just seat of my pants. How'd you do? Everyone said I was wonderful, but I didn't feel that at all. So when I came back to New York, I sought out uh, a teacher. Yeah, and I asked a lot of people about, and everyone, you know, I heard the name Kurt Conway a lot. He had been a, a director at CBS. He had broken in people like Sidney Lumet and Martin Ritt and Bob Mulligan, and uh, he had been blacklisted. He had signed a petition, a Willie McKee petition. He, he was married to an obscure young actress called Kim Stanley. Uh huh who became huge and probably one of the best actresses I've ever seen. She was a Broadway actress. She and Geraldine Page were members of the Actors Studio, who I became quite familiar with. But this guy Conway was with the studio as well? Yeah, he was with the group theater. The group he, before? He was with the, that with Strasburg and Clerman and... Uh, Odette's? Was Odette's? Odette started as an actor and then became a writer, yes. In the group theater? In the group theater. And a lot of those great plays he did well, were done he, for he the did, group theater. Yeah, Waiting for Lefty yeah. and, and uh, Golden Boy and uh, Rocket, Rocket to the Moon yeah. and, and, you know, yes, all of that. He became a writer. In other words, what the group realized is there was more drama in the streets of New York than there were on the stages. So the idea, though, like this, this was a, a, a socially active, th th this was building on a, a revision of the, the sense of community that the theater had and, and how it would impact the, yes. the culture. Both Harold Clerman and Lee Strasberg were young guys at the Theater Guild. Mm -hmm. They were doing plays, watching people like Alfred Luntle and Fontaine and, mm -hmm. and much more classical uh Chestnuts, really. I mean, yeah. You know, as opposed, uh, they realized that the theater needed something contemporary. Chekhov, for instance, in Russia had done his plays about the dying aristocracy yeah. at the time. Right. That's how the Moscow Art Theater embraced him. And there were people like Erwin Shaw and and you know, a lot of writers who wanted to write stuff about what was going on, the Depression and Roosevelt and the NRA and WPA and stuff. That's what the group theater did. And, and theater at that time had a little bit of vitality to it. I mean, there, you know... There, uh, well, it had... People were engaged with it? Oh, there was... New York theater was huge. Yeah. I and mean, the plays were opening all the time and closing all the time and being panned and being hits and and you had, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, in the Jewish theater too, the Yiddish theater with Marie Schwartz and mm -hmm. Menasha Skolnick and, and, and people. I mean, theater was alive. Yeah. But these guys all went to Moscow because they had heard about the Russian 
the Moscow Art Theater. Yeah. And Stanislavski. Right. And doing those plays about the dying aristocracy, the comedies that Chekhov was writing and that, you know, the Three Sisters and Uncle Vanya. Yeah. And uh, and also the Brecht, uh, the Brechtian Theater was alive in Germany at the time. We're talking about the 30s. So so, uh, Strasbourg... And and they all went to to to, to yeah. study or to to they see or to went to sit at his feet yeah and listen to him as he talked Stanislavski Stanislavski so they're Con- the Constantine Stanislavski became surrogate father to them. the Buddha yes and and so Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner yeah. and Harold Klerman and Lee Strasberg Lee Kazan a young actor you know they all went there yeah and gleaned now they all came back and they all interpreted over the years differently uh Strasbourg sense memory and i mean they they their emphases were all different but this was the birth of the method this was definitely uh stanislavki never called it the method right it was a bad transition right he called it the the system mm-hmm Actually, we're system actors. We're not method actors. Okay. <laughs> so finally, it's been clarified. <laughs> well, it's it, it's crazy. Is, is it the same? But you know, the fact that that Stella Adler and Strasberg and and uh, the other people that were uh, Sanford Meisner that they all broke off and and did their different schools of the system yes. or the method. Yes. Uh, what were those infights about? I mean, what was the decision making? Well, it's the same infights that I saw as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, <laughs> which is known as the city of churches, yeah. because every other corner had a church of yeah. a different denomination. And I used to hear, I'm talking about Episcopalian and Presbyterian and mm-hmm. Greek Orthodox and Protestant. Russian Orthodox and Jewish and mm-hmm. Muslim, as we called them in those days, uh, you know, Arguments all the time, and I, I used to say, well, "Wait a second! Nobody chose their religions. They yeah. were handed them for credit. What are they arguing about? Right. These are all saying the same thing. Oh, if you don't believe in our religion, you're not going to heaven. Yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, that, there's some conditions. I'm not, yeah, <laughs> all kinds of conditions. Yeah. You know, yeah. If I confess my sins to this guy, it's, it's going to be clean until next weekend. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so I mean, wipe it clean weekly. Anyway, so you when you get involved, when you okay, know, I am artistic director of Actor Studio West. New now, York. now, but, I have been for a long time. But when you when at the beginning, when you decide that you need an acting teacher, and, and you you got this guy's con this guy Conway's name, you know, what year are we talking? This is long after the the establishment of, of no, the, yeah. This is this is after the group well, theater. Got, it's I now got, the Actor Studio. I got into the act. Uh, I have to go backwards. Yeah. I got into the actor's studio in the, uh, like, 54, 55. And who was in charge? Strasburg. Okay, and who was this guy, Conway? He was... Uh, a teacher. Te- teaching uh, uh, privately in, 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 uh, on 54th Street and 6th Avenue. So they could just be part of the studio and then teach privately? Yes. Got it. W- which... Uh, most of the people I teach today are acting teachers, actually. Interesting. Because uh, I, I pictured at that time that you, you'd go, you'd sit with, uh, with Strasburg, there'd be 20 of you. and you do that. Okay. So, so there, that was part of it, but then you could do private study with, with a, a teacher of your choice. Yes. 
Okay, oh, I get before it. I, before I became a member of the studio, yeah. I studied with Kurt, who was much more uh, Sandy Meisner than Lee Strasberg. How, what is that different? Differentiation. Well, what is Sandy that? Meisner talks much more about uh, intentions, actions, what a character needs to do. Yeah. Strasberg is much more interested in the sensory life of the character. Isn't that interesting? Because like, there's so little examples uh, cinematically of Lee Strasberg acting that you know, having known about him when I was a little kid. Yes, and you know, you you watch that one movie with the with him and, and Art Carney where they they play the bank robbers. That's right, and George and, George Burns. George Burns. So like, you know, like as a guy in high school or junior high or wherever I first started learning about Strasberg, you're watching that. You know, this is the guy. Right, and you're watching, and then you know, Godfather too right uh, he plays uh, the Meyer Lansky character the, exactly uh, and uh, in fact that, that's his first job Al, Al Pacino who studied with Lee yeah talked him into doing and, that and I'm watching everything the first time like he's got his leg draped over the chair he's making strange noises yeah. uh, you know he made a lot of decisions yes uh, and I, I've never seen Sanford Meisner act but like you know I, I was always one of these guys when I was younger and you know I start respecting people who come from that the yes. method was very romantic in a way if, uh, of course and, and me too yeah <laughs> right so you watch you know what are the tricks and then you see some of these guys it was very interesting to me and I'm going to ramble for a second but you know don't, as, don't don't worry about it ramble okay. well these guys that these method actors of, of the generation of Pacino and De Niro right. and uh, you know the, I guess that would be really second generation right or th of the of the actor studio well, yeah I, I say uh, Eli Wallach and, and those guys, the first guys would be the first generation and James Dean Montgomery Cliff well uh, Jimmy Dean was my best friend yeah yeah and I you mean, met him in New York I met him in New York I met him when he before I, almost anyone knew who he was. Right, but when I watch you as an actor, like you're in Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is one of my favorite films, is one of my all-time favorite Thank films. Thank you. I've seen it so many times. Thank you so much. And and I could see in your performance the depth of, of experience and emotion and, dis and choices you were making in, in how engaged. And I wasn't directed a whole lot by Woody. Uh, no, uh, yeah, he doesn't do that much, right? No, he doesn't. He, he hires no. you to do the job. If he doesn't like what you do, he fires you. Right, and it was a beautiful performance the same with ed wood same with tucker same with the big movies that we know you from but what's interesting to me when i watch like there, there's something that happens that like pacino and de niro that 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 was very interesting to me because you, you watch them and you know when they were younger they're really engaging right. the, the method a lot oh, absolutely and then in the mid period once they've got their fame they kind of start relying on some quirks and ticks uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, patterns of behavior. And now, as they've both gotten older, if they're given the right role, okay. they can really lock into it again. Absolutely, and it's fascinating. Uh, you're absolutely right, and those are those are stages that I, I agree with you about. They became almost caricatures of themselves, right? Because it sold. Because it it was successful, right? So let's okay. So let's get back. So you you lock in. You're studying with Kirk. You're studying with Strasberg. It's the fifties. Well, I start, yeah, I, I, I go from Kurt, everyone told me not to do the scene I did for the actor's studio because Lee Strasberg directed it on Broadway. Uh -huh. Clifford Odets had written Clash by Night, that's a, the piece I did, yeah. for the group theater, but the group disbanded. Strasberg directed it on Broadway commercially with Lee J. Cobb, Tallulah Bankhead and Pepe Schil uh, Joseph Schilkraut, uh -huh. and it flopped. So everyone said, 
don't do that. Don't remind him. <laughs> well, don't remind him. Said, even if Kazan passes you, yeah. I had to be judged by the final audition. Kazan, Cheryl Crawford, and Lee Strasberg. You have to get one votes. One means pass, pass, pass. One, one, and a two, no. Two means I like you, but come back in six months. And three means, hey, don't You're knock out. in my doorway yeah. <laughs> ever again. You got to get them all. You got to get them all. So everyone said, even if Strasburg, even if Kazan likes you, loves you. Yeah. And Cheryl loves you. Lee would never like anything you do because that show, uh, right after that, he went to Hollywood and he struck out there, unlike Kazan, who hit in Hollywood. As a director? Because, yeah. Oh, Strasburg. Strasburg. Yeah, Strasburg wanted to direct. Yes, he wanted to direct for movies. So he really didn't make it as an actor or a film director. He was a teacher. Eventually, and then became an actor after 40 years of not being an actor. But teaching some of the greatest actors alive. Yes. Isn't that something? So did you pass? I passed. All three? Yeah. Obviously. And what did Strasburg say to you? Only two of us passed that time around. Two Ooh. actors. One guy called Steve McQueen and me. Steve McQueen, I've heard that name. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> I, I learned that he was pretty good. Yeah, he did all right for himself in he the did, movie business. He did, he did. Was he a good stage actor? He started as, a, he went on the road for time out for Ginger and playing Tennis Anyone, one of those parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he then replaced Ben Gazzara in Hatful of Rain on Broadway, and that kind of established him as an important actor. But it's interesting that guys like you and, and people that we know from television and from movies, you know, very, rarely at this at this point, historically, do we know the dues you paid in theater. Right. And, and that's where a lot of this stuff gets done. Like, I don't even know if I've ever even considered Steve McQueen a stage actor. Yes. In my mind. He started at the... Uh, in New York. In fact, the first time I ever uh, knew, met Steve, or knew Steve, of Steve, yeah. I was on the back of Jimmy Dean's motorcycle, which was pop, 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 sputtering, uh -huh. and we drove into a, a garage on 10th Avenue, and one of the mechanics was a young guy who looked like Steve McQueen, yeah. whose name was Steve McQueen, <laughs> yeah. and he fixed Jimmy's motorcycle. And, and that was the Steve McQueen. Yeah, and he hated Jimmy because Jimmy was getting all the parts on television. So you're there. And, and Mar Marlon Brando. Yeah. I mean, Monty Clift. They were all there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was... Surrounded. When I did a scene, I mean, <laughs> Kip Stanley was there and Geraldine Page was watching. And, Geraldine Page, and, the, and she's the genius. Patri and Patricia Neal. Oh, my God. I mean... Uh, this is the crew that you're in with. And you're 20, what, 24? I'm young. Yeah. I'm a kid. And when you're watching them, you know, working with them, did, did you... Is that where you... Well, Lonnie, I did a, a bunch of projects with Lonnie Chapman, mm -hmm. who is... A, a, it's funny because Frank Cassaro had a group of New York guys, yeah, and I was adopted by a bunch of Okies, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Lonnie Chapman and and uh, Pat Hingle and those guys. Pat Hingle, he's great. He was in all the Clint Eastwood movies. Uh, yeah, but he's again actor studio. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, and great character actor. 
most of the people who were at the studio yeah. were pretty good. You, 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 you know, to this day, it's hard to get into the studio. Recently, we had final auditions. We had so many, we had 25 on one Sunday and 25 on another. We took a lot of people for, for us. We, yeah. took, we took three people out of 50 scenes. Yeah. Probably, I would say 30 of those scenes were dual scenes, dual, yeah. dual auditions. Yeah. Two auditioners would, would work together? To audition for the actor's studio, you have to do a scene that's not classical, five minutes long with a partner. Anything you want to do. So it's good that you know, like, so you got to have a friend who's gonna, who wants to audition the same day you do. I mean, I mean, you don't just put people together, right? Or are they already no, taking classes? No, they sign up uh, together. Six, six months in advance. Yes. For, the West Coast studio right now is in very good shape. Good. The work that's being done is brilliant work. The best acting I see in this country. Mm -hmm. Every day of the week, Monday through Friday, we have at least one session, which is breaking down a script, how to rehearse, uh, sense memory, uh, effective memory sessions, speech, uh, how to, you know, all kinds of stuff. On Friday, I run and moderate an acting session with two scenes. Usually two people in each scene, but sometimes more, and mm -hmm. then I, I critique it. Uh, usually 80 to 100 people show up because, you know, if, if, if by the same token, I, as an actor, wasn't doing what I was telling them to do, I don't think anyone would show up. Well, I've been doing some acting, and, you know, what what do you look for? What is, like, if you were to tell me right now... Uh, what What's the most important thing? That, yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Trust. Huh. What I've got, come to. Talent is one thing. Uh huh. But to trust your talent is a hard thing to do. To trust your choices. To use the rehearsals in ways that you're not watching yourself. Right. Self conscious. Well, more than that, it's, yeah. it's it's the director in you. Leave the director outside. Uh -huh. When you break down as a script and make choices on a scene or a character, there's an objective part of you that makes that looks at stuff. You make a choice that's conscious, and then either trust that to your subjectivity or don't. Now, if you do, let it take you where it will. If it does what you hope it will, it will end the scene. Oh. As opposed to your deciding mm. to end the scene. Right, I get it. I, it's hard to explain. No, I, I, think, I, I, I think I understand it because to make it, a it, it, bring, it, bring, it brings a lot of things together, you know, from, from what I'm projecting onto. Go ahead. Know, what, uh, is that, you, you know, if you are in it, if you're available, if you're trusting your, your own emotions in, in the moment of the scene. Right. That you, you're going to make choices. Now, those choices in and of themselves could be, uh, the, that'd be the director in you. 
So to to follow to once you put the choices in place and you trust your emotions to ride through what is scripted, there has to be a certain amount of trust in the material that you're going to get somewhere. But right. that's on you. That's right. Right. So if you're engaged with your emotions and you've made your choices and you trust those things together, it will deliver you to the end of the scene. Absolutely. I understand that only now recently. Okay, good. I'm glad you do. Well, I mean, I'm now... Uh, <laughs> no, because... But applying it is hard. Trusting yourself to the degree that you don't be objective, that you trust your subjectivity and allow it to go where it needs to go. That's what rehearsals are for, Yeah, to but, find out. But the interesting thing about television, or as you know, film, is that, uh, you, you know, especially television, is that, you know, your rehearsals are going to, it's going fast, man, and your coverage is coming up, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully they're going to cover you last. <laughs> so, so you know, you've got... Yeah, but, but you still have to do it a lot of times. Right. I mean, you know, again... I mean, okay, I tell you a joke. Yeah. And it's funny, okay? But then I, if I tell you the same joke 15 or 20 times, is it still funny? How do you find the funny in it? Right. Okay? Well, I have to do okay. that for a living. <laughs> okay, but there are all kinds of things that are going to come your way. You, right. You have to be able to think on your feet, make choices on your feet, and fulfill those choices. That's, like, that's amazing. To trust yourself to the point where you're not going to get a lot of help from a director who's got all kinds of things to worry about. They might not even be looking at you. <laughs> Probably doesn't. Yeah. You know, one if you know the lines and hit the marks, it's one less thing for them to worry about. Right. I mean, it's like, thank God, because, you know, I mean, they have all kinds of decisions and problems to make. But... The wonderful thing about uh, 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 trusting yourself, again, you know, I use analogies all the time. I say, if you can swim well, what are you worried about drowning? Right. Why are you spending so much time thinking about it? Right. If you're afraid of earthquakes, don't live in California. Otherwise, you're going to spend all your time worried worried about stuff that you can't control. Right. If you can learn how to do what you do well learn it because that's the one thing you have control over that's right because I, I my experience recently in 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 doing a, an acting job yes was that there was a scene yes that was an emotional scene but i i you know i was a, a fairly a guy that you know stuffed his emotions down but this scene you know was was explosion it wasn't an explosion it was emotion it was a crying it we could oh. yeah but it wasn't scripted so, like, I had this scene where I find something out that is emotionally complete upheaval. Right. And and I didn't know that I was going to cry. Of course. And then, you know, like, we did it again, and, you know, I got there again, but I said, I think two is it. <laughs> I understand. But if you, have, if you have craft, you can do 15 of them. Really? And the reason you have to do 15 is, again, you do a, a master shot... Two or three of those, maybe, and then fifty-fifty sure. shot, and sure. then uh, over the shoulder, maybe two or three times over his shoulder or her shoulder, two or three times onto you. You still have to act. I know, but so. like, fortunately for me, we did coverage. But you know that I that well, well, you were lucky. I was lucky, but like, let me ask you about the craft. 
So, yes. so you know, like I, I run, I fly by the seat of my pants a bit, but I do make, I do rudimentary, you know, acting, you know, from experience, you, you know, from having done a show. But when you say craft, that would enable me to cry every time. What is that? Well, you were moved twice, and you said, "Whoops, I think that's it. I don't think I have any more tears." Well, you have more tears, and once you know, so you say, "I got insecure." Well, yeah, you you you, you doubt my I. You you then, you know, the doubts the doubts occurred. And you know, I don't think I can do this again. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. Instead of being amazed by it, yeah, expecting it, yeah, just, it just say get there again. I can get there fifty times if I have to. And that comes from rehearsal and from that doing comes, the work. That comes from learning your craft. With that kind of thinking, you never dry up. You always you're always a student of life. You're learning stuff. You you you're reacting differently to different things. And you're beginning to realize that certain things affect you in certain ways. The more you live in your body, I mean, there are a lot of actors who stop training themselves. Why? Life is a lesson, continually. But the, the fundamental you're saying is that w once you don't d doubt yourself, right? That because, like, what I did was I said no to myself. I said, right. Hey, right. As, as opposed to saying, as opposed to I can do that. I can do that, and I can and just figuring out, making note of of the the journey I took emotionally. Exactly, and hold on to it. Hold on, find it again. Right. Not hold on to it. Find it again. Right. Take the take the same road. Right. I always say, if you stay on Route sixty six, you're not going to see the Grand Canyon. You're not going to see Indian reservations. Right. If you want to get off the roads and learn st stuff about yourself. That's not sense memory. That's that's emotional discipline. That's also sense memory. It is. It is because if you practice something again and again and again, and it works again and again and again, it's sense memory. So that's the, that is the essence of scene study, and that's why you do it. That's right. You know, I, I talk to a lot of actors, you know, right. and some have a system, and they, they have a craft, but, you, you know, a lot of times it's not so specific. Yeah, and it's hard... I mean, I find that there are actors that I've talked to for, for five and ten years saying the same things, and suddenly they're enlightened <laughs> as if they've heard it for the first time. But that, but that happens in life. That's exactly what you're that. talking about. And, and, and actors that I respect will come up to me and say, you know, I finally understand what you're saying. <laughs> After, what, 20 years? Yes, but they're, they're talking about understanding it viscerally. As yeah, because they, they, they... As opposed to not understanding it bodily. I get it, I get it, right. Like, you know, like I can understand you intellectually and I can put A plus B equals C together. Yes. But for me, but sometimes... You that, still have to do it. Right, but sometimes uh, people have been doing it and they just never were able to identify it. And once they identify it, they're like, I can do it again. Exactly. Got it. It's part of, of what I can put in my kit bag. Right. Like in, in, in both, it, you, you, I, I, I don't have a clear memory of Tucker, but I have a clear memory of uh, the work you did in uh, the Ed Wood movie and of Crimes and Misdemeanors, of course. And Crimes and Misdemeanors, that was a, 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 a varied and emotionally uh, deep. Uh, deep performance. It was the deepest. Very deep. To make the decisions that you well, made. Well, I also wanted, I didn't, I wanted him to be every man. 
in the sense that was the genius of it i even said to woody when he flew me in yeah he'd been this is crazy because he's in new york and Uh he for four weeks he'd been trying to cast the part and hadn't yeah and i had just done tucker and he julia taylor and he saw it the same week and they said what about landau even though a very different character and he flew me in to New York, yeah. put me up at a hotel, and I met with him. And I, Juliet Taylor was there, he was there, and I was there. And I walked in, and nothing was said. I sat down, and we kind of looked at each other for a while. <laughs> and then he says, after it seemed like a long time. Yeah. I just wanted to spend a few seconds with you. And that's all he says. <laughs> so I get up and walk to the door. I said, I guess my time's up. <laughs> yeah. He said, no, 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 sit down. And then he, so I sit down. I'm, I'm sitting on a, a kind of a, a backless thing. And mm-hmm. they're, they're, he's on a couch and she's on a chair in this dark room. And he starts to talk. I don't know what the hell he's talking about because mm-hmm. I haven't read the script. Yeah. Anyway, he's he's talking, and then he says, "In the middle of this, I, yeah. I, I don't. I thought I've been lobotomized. I yeah. swear to God. I mean, it was like, I, what the hell? I, I I have no clue what he's talking about." Yeah. He then says, "Edward G. Robinson." That's the only thing I recognize. Uh huh. Now I had done middle of the night on Broadway. With Edward G. It was Patty Chapsky's first play on Broadway. Jenna Rollins played my wife. Edward G. Robinson played the lead. I toured with it also. That brought me to California. That's what Hitchcock saw me in. For North by Northwest. I didn't know what it was for, but it was, that's, but that's what the way you were in. Yeah, he played kind of a heavy. I played as, I played him as a gay character actually. Oh really? He wasn't written that way. Yeah. But I, he wanted to get rid of Eva Marie Saint with such a. Vengeance, I thought it was a great choice. Everyone told me not to do it. Yeah. My first big movie, I'm playing a gay guy. I'm not gay. And I said, everyone's going to think you're gay. Did everyone pick up on it? it some people did. Yeah. I, I don't know that I did. Hitchcock did. Yeah. Was he okay with it? He loved it. <laughs> All right. So you're, uh, you're with Woody. He says, after this talk. Yeah. He says, where are you going to be in an hour? And I said, in, my, in the hotel. I mean, that's what I'm here for. He said, I'll send the script over in an hour. I said, oh, good. So an hour later, the phone rings, and it's Juliet Taylor yeah. saying, it's going to be another half hour. His casting He's agent. writing you a note. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm here. Yeah. Half an hour later, she comes and delivers the entire script to me. She said, very unusual. I said, what? You... He's letting you read the whole script. I said, what's usual? He said, just your sides. Yeah. And and he doesn't want you to know the rest of it. So then she leaves. I read the script. It's the best script of all the Woody Allen movies that I've read. I agree with you. The second I close it, the phone rings. It's Juliet. I, I swear I was doing Mission Impossible again. I thought 
<laughs> the room is bugged. Yeah. I better look behind the pictures. So it's like she says, he wants to talk to you tomorrow. I said, great. I, I run off at the mouth because I haven't talked for two hours. And I'm really excited. And she says, 9 or 9.30. I said, well, make it 9 o'clock. She said, he's worried about how fast you wake up. I said, tell him I'm worried about how fast he wakes up. At 9.30 in the morning, I go there. And I understand. I said, tell me what you meant when you said Edward G. Robinson. I, now I, I, I love the script. I love, he said, in days gone by, I would have cast him in the part. And I say, Oh, that's terrible. That's wrong. I said, what the fuck are you doing, Landau? I've got Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder saying, you're just talking to one of the great filmmakers in the world, telling him he doesn't know what the hell he wrote. I can't stop myself. I said, you know, I, th I think you're singing much more, uh, much heavier than I do. I, I, I said, you know, whomever plays this part has to be... I mean, he's a spoiled brat. He's a, an embezzler. He's a womanizer. He's a murderer. He doesn't do a single redeeming thing in this picture. It would be very easy to dislike this guy. I said, he's your protagonist. Whomever plays him, the audience has to join up with him and see themselves in him and be horrified at the same time or you don't have a movie, <laughs> is what I said. <laughs> So, you're right <laughs> and I realized I, I, but I couldn't play it any other way yeah so he sits and looks at me with these two Coca-Cola bottles you yeah know. Uh, it's very quiet and I said oh Jesus yeah I just talked myself out of a great part yeah what time is your flight back he says I said, well, it's supposed to be at noon. He said, can we make it four o'clock? I'd like to fit you for wardrobe for the character. <laughs> and then about two weeks into shooting, he said, you know, when I wrote it, I didn't think of it the way you're doing it, but it's better. I trust you, and I trust your instincts enormously. And he left me alone. He reshot his half of the movie again and again and again. He did reshoot one scene that I did on my birthday. I did the scene in her apartment, and then it's, then it's, she's gonna ring my doorbell. Yeah. We reshot it. He said, I, I, we go back to the apartment too many times. He said, I'm gonna have her coming onto your turf. So we did the same scene in the car at the gas station. Right. In the rain. Yeah. Before the, the murder, before I call my brother and have, go through that catharsis at the house. So we did that again. And I agreed with him. I said, I, yeah, how many times can we go back there? And there's more I menacing. And I have to go much more menacing. Yeah. Now she's going to ring my doorbell. Yeah. I mean, she's, this is my birthday and she's going to blow the whistle on yeah. me. So. So that 
was reshot verbatim. The, 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 she gives me the record and the Schubert yeah. and all of that. I mean, I still remember this yeah. picture because I worked very hard on it. It's a masterpiece. You were a genius in it. Well, thank you. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I, he, he invited me to see dailies, and I didn't go because I didn't want to, I wanted to just keep my subjectivity alive yeah. and not be objective about it. The day I finished, he ran two and a half hours of dailies for me, and I saw the stuff because I knew I couldn't do anything about it or I could not get self-conscious about it. But that was important to me. Whereas, like in Tucker, I went to the dailies all the time when I saw, did Tucker because Vittorio, Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, is so his contribution is so important. Whereas Crimes and Misdemeanors was very flatly lit by Sven Nyqvist, yeah. who was Ingmar Bergman's yeah. cinematographer. I, I knew what that looked like. Yeah. So I didn't have to look. With Vittorio... And that's Coppola, right? That was Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. And and the dailies were at Lucas Ranch. Yeah. Vittorio's dramatic lighting was impressive. Was well, elevating the time. Yeah, but 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 I I made my choices yeah. with relation when he used lots of con contrast. Yeah. I eased up on my choices. I, I made my character a little more bland mm -hmm. because the dr the drama was in the lighting, and I did, it would be like a white and white shirt. And that was your decision. Always my decisions. I don't talk to the director much about anything, except when you tell him that he, he he's got a, the wrong conception of his lead character. Well, that's before <laughs> that's before I'm hired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once I'm hired, my no, I try to make the director feel like. All the ideas are his. Interesting. That's the you know, best way. Sure. I mean, you know. <laughs> no, no. I, it makes complete sense. And, and that, that you're. I think what I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by in hearing it is how aware you are of it. Well, and I also, that, also lenses. I mean, for instance, uh, let's say there was a picture that I did where, at the beginning of the movie, I, I get good news. And it was a wide-angle lens. Yeah. I uh, I can do a dance. Sure. Oh, ah, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm excited because you're way back okay. there. Then yeah. he said, "I said, how are you going to cover this?" He said, "I want to use a 200 millimeter lens on this scene." He says, "Yes." With the 200 millimeter lens, I'm out of frame if I do this. I'm out of frame if I do this. I'm soft if I do this. You got to split the focus between my tip of my nose and my eye. I can't do that dance. Yeah, I've got to do something else for joy in that first scene. That's wide. Yeah, seventeen twenty-five millimeter. The whole world's in that but shot. It's, it's got to match, though, right? It's got to match. Yeah, and the money shot is that shot. Yeah, I said. Could you use a fifty? He said, "No, I want, I want the background to be blurry. Uh -huh. I don't want to see any of it." Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got to think on my feet fast. 
So, I, I mean... I get it. I, I, I do that stuff ahead of time. It, you know, it's fascinating to me, though, in, in thinking about crimes and misdemeanors, because I've watched it so many goddamn times. Yes. Is that there, there was... You, you're absolutely correct, obviously, but there... It's interesting that the that that Woody had perceived this guy w- without giving him the emotional depth necessary to carry the film uh, in a way that... He was a little bit more of a cheater in Woody's eyes. As a, I feel that this guy, his big crime is that he led her on uh-huh. and didn't cut it off right. earlier. And, right, and his lack of dealing with it creates a big problem for him. that he wrestles with like Raskolnikov yes so it's 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 very russian yeah it's very chekhovian yeah. it's very it's very oh and that dostoevsky yeah those stuff the stuff you did with jerry wow jerry orbach oh my god well, now the interesting thing for three days a different actor played that part oh and it was freezing cold in New York, and we shot the stuff in the car. He happens to be a brilliant actor, but he's playing it like a racetrack tout. And Woody, it's freezing cold. It looks like a Michelin man. Yeah. He's coming. You can, <laughs> I, I can't even describe it. It's hilarious. But Rosa, I never heard him direct. He's saying, don't do that. That's his direction. Yeah. Just talk the way you would. The, 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 the deed speaks for itself, he tells the guy. The guy who's a good actor does it more. I said, uh-oh. Don't talk out of the side of your mouth. He talks out of the side of his mouth more. Woody fires the guy a couple of days later because Jerry Orbach is available, who was not available when we started the movie. Uh-huh. And Jerry and I, I mean, I knew Jerry Orbach when he was singing in coffee houses. And he was 18 years old. Yeah. I mean, in Greenwich Village. Uh-huh. I mean, Jerry was great casting. He could have been my kid brother. So now Hitchcock, let's go back to this because okay. it seemed important to you. And it was a big deal. You know, I, I mean, we can talk about all the TV appearances and this and that. But these to me... <laughs> But these, to me, are, are for you as an actor, yes. seem to be loaded up. Right. Right? Well, everything has... Well, know, I'm not trying to trivialize anything, no, but we could but be I, here. I, I mean, there are points, everything I've done, I could talk about... In, in this in, way? In, <laughs> in interesting ways. Sure, sure, sure. Because, I mean, I never... You know, a lot of actors use the, the expression, just fold it in. Yeah. I never have done that. I've always, you know, I've never met two people who were alike. Well, this is that great story that, uh, you know, when they were shooting A Few Good Men. Yeah, he was talking to Nicholson. The the story seemed, I think, gravitated from, from A Few Good Men because when they weren't doing his coverage, apparently he was still giving it 100%, you know, for the other actor. Right. And I guess someone asked him, you know, why do you, why do you put your, everything into it? And he just said, because I love to act. That's right. <laughs> Jack was my student for three years. Real? How? What years was that? Uh, fifty-nine. Oh, really? Sixty. Uh, fifty-eight. Half of fifty-eight. Fifty-nine. Sixty. Until I left for Cleopatra in sixty-one, 
and I, I had him do exercises. There's a New York Times article on Jack, and the opening paragraph is, he says, the reason I'm a good actor is because of exercises I did in Martin Landau's class, which was a singing exercise, getting the voice, the body, and the emotions together, no splits, uh, where everything works together. Uh, that's a Strasbourg exercise. Uh, it's designed to get the voice to allow it to be colored by what's going on, as opposed to learning the line in a certain way. What's the exercise? You sing Happy Birthday or Three Blind Mice, holding each note the same length of time with a lot of vibrato, and leave yourself alone, and when, and try to relax, and you'll find tension starting in various places. and. Uh, if you can relax the boys suddenly, you start to laugh at odd times that colors the voice. Or you start to cry. You start to get angry. Huh. You're looking at your fellow class members. And the second part of it is very physical, where the, the voice follows the, the, the physical exertion as opposed to the, the voice leading the body leads and the voice follows the, the body's effort. Ah. And it's an interesting exercise because once you can do it, you look forward to doing it because it, it, it opens you up. Uh, once you get past the fear of doing it. It can take years. Well, there's a vulnerability that, you, you, that we're, we're sort of like moving around. You know that you know whether it's uh, being confident in what you're doing or having faith in what you're doing, and then you talk about these exercises. But what really what is at the core of the risk of it is that vulnerability, being vulnerable, and vulnerability is something men don't like to reveal. Mm. Uh, intimacy is something that men yeah. don't like to reveal. Yeah. Uh, Dancers have other problems, you know. They're lined up pretty nicely, and it's hard for them to be ugly physically. Yeah, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, but when we talk about, like, when you talk about somebody like, um, like you can see it in your own performances and in, in the ones that I'm familiar with, that you carry your vulnerability. You, you, you know, I, you, you don't hide it at all, no, really, ever. Yeah, and that's a that's a gift, or is that something you learn? No, it's something I'm always aware of. I mean, why always? Sure. I running mean, away come from, from Brooklyn. <laughs> Why would, I don't want anyone to see this softness. Yeah. No, it, it was something I, I felt I had to work on. And then somebody, somebody, when you talk about James Dean, or you talk about Montgomery Cliff, like you know, Mar and Marlon, and Marlon, those three, those were the, those were just the raw. Well, you saw vulnerable guys. Yeah. Different kinds of vulnerability, but. Vulnerable. Was that earned or were they like that? I don't know. I can't answer that. Well, you were hanging out with James Dean. Was he well, naturally like that? Well, Strasburg was rough on Jimmy, and Jimmy stopped working at the studio. Uh, that's why he was he was gentle with Steve McQueen and rough on me. Why do you think he makes those decisions? Because he's Lee Strasberg. <laughs> I mean, I, you must I have, it you're must asking be. me questions. I can only tell you what I think. Okay. As opposed to sure. Strasberg. What you feel. There were, there were people that he absolutely, he was tough. Yeah. Really tough. 
Yeah. And there were actors who couldn't survive it. Yeah. I think one of his reasons was he realized that if you didn't have that, that stick-to-itiveness, you're better off not doing it. Hmm. That it took a lot of effort and work. So he's probably harder on the more gifted that could have slouched through he, it. He, Yes. He was tough on you. He was gentler with women, mm-hmm. harder on men. Uh, if you were Marilyn Monroe, you had a better than anybody (laughs) (laughs) i mean i could tell you stories about you know i I play john the baptist on omnibus with eartha kid as salome and Mm. he had me come up with something he never did and balled the shit out of me because eartha kid came in john sticks was sitting right next to him who directed that episode of uh, omnibus he said landau landau this is like two or three weeks after I did the live show of, of, of Salome on, yeah. on uh, Omnibus. He said, uh, I want to discuss your performance. He said, uh, any English actor could have done what you did. You didn't have the cistern in as deep, uh, the cistern, which is the well. Uh, you should have been more physically uh, connected to that. I said, well, the director, I never said John Sticks, who was sitting right next to you. I said, the director and I discussed it because Eartha Kitt came in with a performance, and I felt if I did that, uh, I, I, I would come off as being very indulgent. I sort of used her as the choices I made. Yeah. He said, inexcusable, and chastised me. And I remember Marilyn was there that day, and... Charlie Page was there that day, and Kim Stanley was there, Maureen Stapleton was there that day, and Eli Wallach was there that day. And and then the following week, he, he called me up again because he got a lot of letters saying that he was rough on me, on duty, and that I tried to explain. From other actors? From Frank Cassaro yeah. and other people. He read the letters, and then he bawled me out again. Hmm. So... But everything he said was right. Which was what? That you were depending, you were reacting as opposed to acting? That I didn't play the physical fatigue and the fact that I wasn't eating good food and the fact that I was being dying in that. And that even before my head was chopped off, that I was physically wearing down mm. in that environment and I needed to have a little more of this even though it's Oscar Wilde and written in in a poetic way huh where is he anyway right right so that was a big lesson so now you don't do that anymore you keep aware of that stuff yeah but I also realized too that if it's an actor that comes in who's not doing his job I've got to make a scene work. I may have to make adjustments that don't show me off well to make a scene work. Right. Otherwise, I look bad, just as bad as he does or she does. So what I decided that day with John Sticks was that I couldn't, 
do it as fully as I would have liked to. I said, it'll look like I'm a sore thumb in this. I said, Patricia Neal is playing. I said, I'm the only one who's shot. Yeah. I, I'm going to look bad. Yeah. Earth is going to look wonderful. Yeah. I better... I mean, it's, this is not going to be good for the peace if I do this. But he never stood up for me. Ah. Two times it was brought up at the studio, and he was there, and he never spoke. And he wound up teaching drama at Juilliard, John yeah. Sticks. His Did you have a resentment towards him? I never trusted him after that. <laughs> reasonable <laughs> did you work with him again no yeah i wouldn't so let's talk about you know uh let's talk about ed wood okay you won an oscar yeah spectacular yeah tim burton's pretty i loved him and we talk we talk about you know your awareness of of direction, of lighting, of cinematography, of, of what the director's going for. These are innate things that you do on set that you keep to yourself, in a way. So now you're working in black and white. You're playing a known quantity. Well, we somebody were, you grew up with watching, I imagine. Yeah, but you have to realize, too, I mean, I, the black and white aspect, when we first started, we did, we were going to shoot that picture in color. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I wasn't sure whether I could do Lugosi without making it a farce. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone, every impressionist, sure. Well, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like. Uh huh. I even told him that at the first meeting we had, he called me. You know, first of all, I didn't think it was him. I got a direct call in my house from Tim Burton. Yeah. He said, hello, this is Tim Burton. And I said, yeah, well, this is Thomas Jefferson or something. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I mean that. Sure. I, mean, I, I thought it was one of my friends. Tim Burton's not going to call me directly. Yeah. Well, it was Tim Burton. Yeah. He said, there's a script on its way. Check out the part of Bella and get back to me. This is my number at the studio and this is my home. And I wrote the numbers down and I said, sure, Tim. And within half an hour, a messenger comes with a script yeah. called Ed Wood. And I read it, and I love it. And I call him at the studio, and he's gone. So I call his home number, and he answers the phone. It's Tim Burton. I said, I don't know whether I can do this or not. I said, you know, you spell a Lugosi. I said, you go into any... Uh, video store and there's a whole section of horror movies and there's a whole 10 years ago I probably could have gotten away with it I said I've got to be Bela Lugosi he said you think you can I said he said I you've worked with great act directors and terrible directors you worked in good movies and bad movies you worked in I don't know anyone else who could play this part I said, well, that's very flattering. He's, he's almost... I, I'm not sure I can. But he was almost drawing a comparison between you two. Yes. He was saying that if there's anyone who could play it... Emotionally. Yes, I could do it. Right. 
So I, he says, come in tomorrow, we'll talk about it. So I, I, I said, let's do some tests. We did some color tests. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not Lugosi and I'm not me and I'm not, I don't know who the hell that person is. It's somebody else. Along the way, we're doing tests. Yeah. Two, I have two Polaroids that were taken in the makeup chair. I run them through my fax machine. They come out black and white. Yeah. Lagosi never made a color film. Ed Wood never made a color film. I said, that's the problem. The phone rings while I'm doing this. I swear to God. <laughs> Tim Burton. Yeah. I got a problem, Martin. I said, what? He said, Mark Canton doesn't want to make the film in black and white. I have to make this film in black and white. Mark Canton of Columbia Pictures says it's got to be in color. And you hadn't heard any of this yet? No. Yeah. He said, I'm going to Disney. They're willing to do anything I want to do, but it's going to be another month, and you've got an honor about date on your contract. Yeah. Are you still available in a month, and do you still want to do it? My eyes, yeah. I, I have to collect them from the coffee table <laughs> and put them back in my head. I said, yes. Yeah. You're damn right. I didn't even tell him that yeah. I'd gone through the same fucking thing. Right. It was like serendipity. Yeah. Years later, I told him. Yeah. I never told him. What did he say? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you're, wait, this is Oscar-winning performance, a deserved Oscar-winning performance. Well, thank you. Now, when you, when you, when you, what was the process of building this character out from the inside? I, I looked at a lot of, I was doing a movie called, uh, that Mark Rydell directed with uh, Richard Gere and, uh, Intersection? Intersection. Mm -hmm. We shot in Canada. Tim kept sending me Bella Lugosi movies. Yeah. Including one that I I became a huge fan. Bella Lugosi meets a gor the gorilla. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's got Martin and Lewis lookalikes. Who, one sings and one does spastic humor. And they're on an island running around with moo-moos. And there's a castle on the, uh, on the island, and there's a mad scientist in the castle, Bella Lugosi, who's injecting serum into monkeys that overnight become actors in a terrible gorilla suit. Uh -huh. And it's called Bella Lugosi Meets the Brooklyn Gorilla. Yeah. And it's, it makes... Ed Wood's movies look like Gone with the Wind. I mean, I, I'm not kidding. It's, it's you've got to see this movie. Yeah, because Lugosi is working his ass off playing this part of this piece of trash. I my heart went out to him, and I saw that in Vancouver when I was. And then I looked at a bunch of pictures, movies of him being interviewed when he was on top of his game, wearing t a tennis sweater. Yeah. 
and looking handsome. Yeah. And then I saw him coming out of the hospital after going to, through rehab and just shaking hands with all the hospital staff. So, yes, I'm going to start the film with Ed Wood again, you know, and stuff. And I became a huge fan. And I said to Tim, I said, if after five minutes they're saying Landau's doing a good job, we don't have a movie. They've got to believe I'm Bela Lugosi. And I'm going to break my ass getting there. And I did. Was there something, it seems to me that when you talk about it, that there was something as an actor yes. that you identified? Well, a lot of things. Yeah, because this is an aging guy. He's got a morphine problem that he's in and out of. Yes. And, of and he's I've, washed up. Completely. And you found empathy and sympathy and connection with him. Yes. Everything you're saying is what I would say too. <laughs> <laughs> Everything he said goes for me too. <laughs> Was that, would you say, at that point in your life or maybe in your whole life, the, the, the most rewarding it, role? It came at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going through a lot of, you know, I, I mean, we do go through different things. I have a picture that I just finished recently with Paul Sorvino. Oh, yeah. And uh, the guy who directed it and wrote it is a Harvard doctor. Uh -huh. He's 70 years old. It's his first movie. Just finished? It's finished. Yeah. I saw it. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Well, what's it called? It won't be out. It's going to festivals first. Yeah. It's called The Last Poker Game. Uh-huh. And it's a doctor's view of a retirement home hmm. as opposed to a Hollywood view of a retirement home. You see, home. it's interesting. I talk to musicians you see, sometimes. I talk to all different kinds of people. Yes, of course you do. And, you know, there, a lot of the guys, you know, who, who have had uh, success in their life and, yes. and are now, you know, seemingly... Uh, not as relevant as they used yes, to be. Yes, of course. Always believe they're doing the best work of their life right now. Right. But it's interesting, in talking to you for this hour and a half or however long we spent, and talking about acting, there, there's absolutely no reason that couldn't be absolutely true as opposed to some manifestation of an insecure ego. That, you know, there's some part of people that they have to believe that they're still relevant to doing the best work they ever did. But in hearing how you talk about what you do and who you are, and the growth that you seem to do, I believe you. And I want to see the movie. Well, I want you to see this movie. It's deep and interesting. And it's, you know, Paul is, Paul thinks it's the best thing he's ever done. And I agree. The reason I did it was because it, it smacked of rea realism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul... Which is the group theater. <laughs> all the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and... I've known him a long time, but we never worked together oh, that's before. Great. So that's we great. Ha we had a great time. He's done some really kind of you know powerfully deep performances, and he loves. He's an opera singer too, mm. and he sings in this. And oh, that's great. I mean, it's it's Howard used our gifts and encouraged them, and we encouraged him in a certain sense. I, I mean. We would rehearse before we got on the set so that we knew what a scene was about before the crew lit it. Right. 
which is important. Yeah. Otherwise, you you know, the, it's lit, and then you're blocking it and adjusting to the movement. Yeah. As opposed to what's really going sure, on. Sure, sure. And as a result, you know, we didn't go on to the set until we were really there. There. Yeah. It's beautiful. And then we could play with it. Oh, it's beautiful. So it has that. Great. And it was great talking to her. It's so exciting that you, you know, you're still, you're so engaged in, in Well, how old working. are you? Uh, 53. God, I wish I was 53. You're a kid. Uh, good. I hope so. You know how old I am? 88. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, I, I feel like Adolf Zucker, when he honored him at his 100th birthday, he got up and he said, Man, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> You're doing great. Hey. I've talked to guys your age. You got it all going on. Hey, I, I still can think. Yeah, it's beautiful. Most of the guys I came up with, well, they're either dead yeah. or, or they forget what they had for lunch. Not you. you it's astounding. You, you got a better memory than me. Well, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. Oh, Come in. Yeah, hello. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. Well, I appreciate your allowing me to take the time. Thanks, Martin. That is amazing that, uh, I don't know, it just a life well lived and a lot of wisdom there. It was a real honor to have him. To have uh, Mr. Landau join me here in the garage. Uh, you go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Tour schedule. Get on the mailing list if you want my little update. And um, I can play a little guitar. Sure, thanks for asking. Boomer lives. 